Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love to talk to creative people. And today my guest is a returning champion. He's somebody I had on the podcast in like 2015, maybe 2016, uh, Byron Lane. At the time, he had just finished a web series called Last Will and Testicle about his journey with testicular cancer. And now he's just come up come out with his debut novel. It's called A Star is Bored. I've been so excited to read this book. It's inspired by the three years he spent as Carrie Fisher's personal assistant. And I'm a huge fan of Carrie. I had my own little um, adventure in her universe for a while. I interviewed her in the early 90s, 93, I think, and was friendly with her a little bit after that. And I got to go to one of the big parties, which was fun. So um, I was really excited to talk to Byron, and I love the book. It's so good. It's funny. It's smart. It's honest. It's sweet. Um, I can't recommend it highly enough, especially during these challenging times. Before I get to that, I want to get a plug-in for You Don't Know My Life Virtual Game Nights, um, one of my other side hustles. Uh, I know a lot of people are locking down in a way uh, after we had opened up a bit. If you want to get the gang together and do something fun, it would be my pleasure to host you in a virtual game night. Uh, it's affordable. It's fun. You do it on Zoom. It's cool. So go to youdon'tknowmylife.com and you can learn about it. And now here is Byron Lane. Joining us via Skype. No, this isn't Skype. It's Zoom. We switched. It's a new way. It's, it's a, a new, new way. way. Who knows? Skype or Zoom? Nobody cares, <laughs> Dennis, if it's Skype or Zoom. It's returning champion Byron Lane. Author hey. of the new book, A Star is Bored. Um, Byron, you and I spoke for this podcast like three years three years ago, maybe, for your web series, <laughs> Last Will and Testicle. And I don't remember at the time us talking about you writing this book. Like, when did you start to write this book? Because I, I feel like it didn't come up at that at that point that you're working on it. So, yeah, so the book started uh, after Carrie died. So after Carrie died, Carrie Fisher, because the book is inspired by my time as personal assistant to Carrie Fisher. And uh, so after she died, I did a little post on Facebook talking about our memories. And that was the first time I had ever talked about her or posted any photos of us together. And I got such a beautiful response from people. I thought, you know, there must be a way to share some of these stories and some of these beautiful moments. And uh, so I started writing about it. And uh I wasn't sure what form it would take, but then it just evolved into a book. And, you know, I was really inspired by something Carrie used to say, which was take your broken heart and go make art. And so after she died, I kind of, I kind of tried to do that. That's beautiful because I think we spoke before she had passed away. So it must've been like 2015, 2016, somewhere in there. So it was well before that. Um, I did know that you worked as her assistant and we chatted a bit about that because I, I knew her a bit in the 90s. Um, I got to interview her for Detour Magazine, and we'll, I'll tell you all about that in, in a bit. But um, I read the book, and I loved it so much. It's got so much humor and heart. I love the tone of your writing, and but it's really honest, and it's a little raw. There was a point in the middle where your, your fictional actress, writer, celebrity, Kathy Cannon, where we start to deal with addiction, and I was like, oh, shit, he's going there. And um, what would you say were the biggest challenges for you when you were starting to embark on this on this journey in terms of taking what was real and fictionalizing it or including not to include? Do I write about this? Like, wh how did you go with that? 
So I really went into it um, saying this is a novel, so this is fiction. So I tried to not have myself tied up by things that happen in real life. Um, and so I encourage readers too to go into it just knowing that it's a novel. So that was my first step. And then the second step is just was just trying to be honest. And to be honest with you, uh, honest, honest in terms of the spirit of the experiences. So people do have addictions. People do have bipolar disorder. Um, people like my, my character in the book, they do have depression and they do have uh, difficulty with their parents and things like this. So I really just tried to be true to the spirit of those kind of experiences. And in that way, it wasn't very hard to write about because like, for example, for the Charlie character, I relate to depression. I relate to parents who were difficult. And um, I have people in my life, not just Carrie, but others who struggled with addiction and uh, bipolar disorder. So um, that's really what I went into it with, is uh, just trying to be honest about uh, the spirit of those kind of things. Right. And your character starts off in a really soul-crushing news job. And I didn't know yeah. you had a news background, I don't think, when I interviewed you before. You used to work in TV news. Is that right? Ooh, Dennis, those were rough years. And, and, and yeah. also that I... I guess I never thought it could be that awful. Well, it was awful because it's news, for... it's show business, it's important. I'm I'm telling the story. <laughs> like it feels like there's, it's meaningful. It's yeah, on seemingly. Well, well, yeah, yeah. Okay, so a couple of things about that. One was <laughs> first uh, about the meaningful. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. So all right, so I got my start in the news business in New Orleans, um, where I'm from, and I worked for a TV station called WWL. Uh, Channel 4, and they were a dominant number one. So everyone watched them. So every story they did was really important because they, they could affect change in that way. And right. Oda Kotb worked there with me at the time. Um, Angela Hill, this amazing anchor reporter. Um, and uh, so that was, a, that was a, a golden age for all of us who worked there because we really did have an impact on the community. Uh, after that, everything was sort of downhill. So like my first on-air job was in Alexandria, Louisiana, where there was no news. It was like, crawfish season is slow this year, you right. know? Then but I were you, you were on air? Yeah, that was were my you, first on-air Like you job. were in the field, we're going to Byron, oh, yeah. we're going to Byron yes. Lane down at the dock. <laughs> That's right, holding the microphone. I, but you know, the thing- That's so exciting they, to me. It, it was crazy. But in Alexandria, that was marked like 200 or something. Sure. And they um, they had one live shot that they used sparingly. And my first, I maybe I did three live shots. And the first one, the uh, camera guy engineer set me up at a, at a like a festival and I was right in front of the stage. And the second I went live, the stage stuff started and you couldn't hear a word I was saying because behind me was so loud. So it was just a series of disasters out there, but that's kind of expected in small towns. Right. Um, Part of the then course. I got a, yes. And I could not, I mean, I, I look kind of young, so I could not get a job. I was sending my resume tape out everywhere and people were just like, we're not hiring you kid. Right. And Go back to the student council. Um, yes. Yes. And you know, the, the news business has these consultants. So I was desperate. So I hired this consultant who was like, grow your hair longer, style it in an old timey fashion. You need to get like wire rimmed glasses that, you know, the, color your temples a little gray. It was just all insanity. But I, I did get lucky of all places in Vegas. So a guy there saw my resume tape, liked it, thought I had potential. 
and they hired me for uh, at the CBS station. They had a like a cable version of their news, and so I got hired for that, and then promoted to the morning show as a live breaking news reporter for the CBS in Vegas. But that meant I showed up to work at midnight. Right. Got in a live truck with a photographer, listen to a police scanner, drive from crime scene to crime scene, whatever was the bloodiest, most horrible thing, that was our live shot. And in the meantime, it's a, an existence of like uh, beef jerky sticks from 7-Eleven and peeing behind dumpsters wherever you could figure it out. I mean, Whatever it, it takes to it get the story, a, Byron. Whatever it takes to get the story. <laughs> whatever it takes for the show, man. Um, so, so it was very different from where I started, where I worked for a TV station where they were affecting real change in the community to Las Vegas, where it really was, if it bleeds, it leads. And so it was very disheartening and depressing and I was exhausted all the time. And, um, so the news business was, was tough. It was not a fun my, life. Did you ever get to say back to you, Chuck? We didn't have a Chuck, but it would be uh, back to you, Casey. Um, you I know, love it. So good. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was all yeah. that stuff. It was all that stuff. Well, that's cool. Well, in the book, your character's in the soul-crushing job. He gets an opportunity to be the personal assistant of an iconic Carrie Fisher type. Uh, yep. Was Carrie your first job as a personal assistant? Had you done that before? No, I'd never done it before. I was... Um, so when my Vegas news job ended, I moved out to L.A. and got a, another news, write, news job, but this one was off-air, so I was right. just writing... And I did that for like seven years, again, working for a, for a morning show in the middle of the night. So show up at midnight, write the copy that goes in the teleprompter. And so I did that did that for a long time, what they call the graveyard shift, of course. And uh, and then a friend of mine, I did this, I did it like a little independent film. And a friend from that worked for Gersh. Right. Uh, and at the time, Carrie was represented at Gersh. Yeah. And so she sent me an email. Um, do you want to work? Do you want to? Would you want to be an assistant to Princess Leia? Because Carrie's team was looking to hire someone who had writing experience to help her with her novels and articles and right. things like that. So I was like, yeah, because it, it sort of felt like if I'm going to leave the news business, if I'm going to leave my big journalism career, who better? Who better to work for than than Carrie Fisher? Right, exactly. So you went and you did the interview, which is which is depicted in the book. What year would this have been when you started? Twenty eleven. Twenty eleven. So the new Star Wars movies hadn't even really been talked about. That wasn't nope, it was, quite in the air nope. yet. Um, nope, it was far away. It, that didn't materialize. I think until I think that landed on her radar in 2013, 2014, yeah. just as I was leaving. Uh, one of the things I love about the book is the inside look at the celebrity assistant world. There's something called the Bi the assistant Bible, which is handed over mm -hmm. from assistant to assistant, and it has mm -hmm. all the Wi-Fi codes and all of that stuff. Um, when you started, uh, your character in the book doesn't get a Bible, but you leave a beautiful, pristine Bible. Is that how it worked in real life? That was pretty much how it worked in real life. I, I Carrie used to not hire, uh, and this is this is true of a lot of celebrities, not hiring um, professional assistant types right people uh, with those just, skills yeah they just pull from their family and their friends so right. she she told me that i was one of the first that she like hired and she hated the process she just wasn't her style you can imagine you could you could tell and, in the book the interviewing part and stuff like she wasn't yeah, into it. right yeah right, right so um so when so i took over for a really dear friend of hers who was doing it and the friend gave me just some skeleton ideas of stuff and maybe every now and then like a scrap of paper with 
some information on it, but there right. was no like legit uh, manual. Right. How thick was the binder you left behind? How how big is uh, this Bible? <laughs> it was probably like a half inch thing, a right? half inch stack of pages. Nice. Yeah. Laminated, kinkoed up. No, just in a boring old binder. Okay. Isn't that sad? No, it's all right. I should have laminated it. It's all good. I, I'm just, you know, I love I love an office supply moment. Um, you also get into the world of when the, the, the assistants hang out together. They all have drinks together, and they go by nicknames. Nobody knows each other's real name in the book. Is that based on your own experience? Um, no and yes. So there were assistant clubs, and I first learned about them from... Uh, one of Joy Behar's assistants in New York because Carrie did Joy Behar's show. This assistant was like, oh, yeah, we have a big group, you know. I mean, the view stories like, alone. Did you just alone. take him away for a weekend and go start? Just talk. Tell me everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I could never get in. Um, I don't know whether it was because I lived in L.A. and the New Yorkers right. wanted to keep it New York, but... Anyway, I never, I never broke through that one. And then I found out about an L.A. club just uh, through a friend of a friend. And then I just ended up on this email chain um, of all these celebrity assistants. And um, they, they tried to organize some meetups. I never did go. Right. Um, and you never really knew who the folks were working for. Some of them would have an email address that's like Marie at CelebrityName.com. And you'd be like, oh, I see. But, but plenty of them just had like random email addresses. And so you didn't know, but you know, all the emails would be just forward after forward after forward of everyone asking questions about like, hey, where can I get a, a tailor who makes house calls? And anyone know anyone who can put up a security fence? And so it was, it was all that kind of thing, but I, I never did meet up with anyone. I think there's an example in your book where it was like some celebrity saw a movie where the pasta looked good and they wanted to get the recipe for the pasta from the movie or something was something right. like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought that I sounds right. <laughs> right. So I can't say that that actually happened in real life, but I can tell you it was one of the many nightmares that would keep me up at night because uh, it's not shocking that that kind of thing would happen. And it, it, you know, just in talking with my other celebrity assistant friends, it's not something that ever would happen maliciously. Like no one wakes up, I think saying, how can I torture uh, my employees this morning, but uh, but it is a world of wealth and privilege, and uh, sometimes an innocent question about, hey, do, have you seen you know this movie where they cook the thing, and you think you can figure that out? Right. Is, uh, yeah, I was just I was just thinking, I just saw it, man. Just like maybe you know, send off a few emails. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, what would you think? It's like, you know, I think they use basil from Italy. You know what? Yeah. Can you figure that out? I mean, that kind of thing. I can I can see that happen. Yeah, no, for sure. I heard this story once where Barbara Streisand and James Brolin were going to go into their accountants and somebody was temping there and the assistant called and said, when they come, they would like a endive salad with uh, cherry tomatoes, not plum. And they're like, we don't even have a kitchen. They're ordering food <laughs> to order, like gourmet food. So they, you know, Streisand thinks they have the best profiteroles at the DMV. She doesn't know that assistants know. made that call, made those profiteroles oh. happen. Um, oh, I love that. No, the world of celebrity is crazy. I, I, having interviewed them and become friendly with some for a season or whatever, there's a way that the gravity shifts around a celebrity. I remember I had been sort of away and hadn't been in that world at all and then went back to meet somebody about a possible project and 
was hanging out with them and watching something on television and the other person in the room was sort of laughing at everything that this person had said on the TV, like pouring it on a little thick. And I was like, oh, that's right. The, the, the balance shifts. And I remember feeling relieved when I was sort of not around it. What is your feeling about the world of celebrity? Because I think to outsiders who grew up loving it, we so want to be in it. But when you're in yeah. it, it can be weird. It can be weird. And, so, and, and um, kind of a bummer. Yeah, yeah. I definitely experience, I definitely can relate to that moments that are, that feel kind of um, sad or isolating because of limitations. Uh, and the flip side of it about the adulation reminds me of, uh, I had this moment recently where uh, we have a little a little dog named Tilda. I've met Tilda. And every, yes, of course, of course, your friend Tilda. And every time Tilda, she's kind of, uh, Tilda kind of avoids us for the most part. She's an independent lady, you know. So when she walks by, I get excited. I say, hello, I grab her little face. I let her give her a little face rub. And I so I try to be very effusive and excited every time I see her. And then I think to myself, oh, that's how she's living her whole life. She lives her life as in when she sees a human, they are excited to see her. They just want to touch her. They just want a part of her. They want to, you know, and celebrity can be a little bit like that where you live your life and uh, you're in the grocery store or you're whatever and people just want to be around you. They want to pinch your cheek. They want to get your autograph, whatever. And it does, I mean, on some level, it's like, that seems nice. Um, to, to live a life where um, everyone loves you and wants you to wag your tail. Um, but I can see also, and I've experienced where it can, it can also be a track. And it can also be a bummer to be around when you're not the person that's famous or whatever. Yeah. Like your character, Kathy, in the book talks about the shine, which is this sort of perfume that she has that people love and it's not just because she's famous, it's because she's like Carrie, funny, fun to be around, irreverent, everything we love about her, but she knows it's a commodity. And Kathy does in the book. She knows she can trade on it in a way that you can't. And yeah. you know what? We're fighting right now, and maybe you're right about this thing, but guess what? I have the shine, and the shine trumps. That's right, and you'll be back. And you'll be back. Yes. And that I've experienced that with with other friends where we that were well known and we thought we had a friendship and I think there is this you get to a certain point where you feel like it's equal and they could tell you that it's equal but deep down <laughs> it they know it is they're like I'm the famous one you're mm -hmm. not as important as me yeah uh, and that's weird but it's also it's sort weird. of it's also you sort of feel sad too because. You, I think for the other person, they wonder if anything's ever, if they're ever really being valued for who they are, or they're just yes. chasing, cashing in on the shine all the time. I'm, yeah, I, 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 I hope you know this is also a therapy session. Uh, uh, this is very important yeah. to me. I love therapy. Thank God for therapy. I know. You have a character <laughs> yeah, in the book called Therapista, who is yeah, yeah, a yeah. therapist. So during this time that you were um, working for Carrie, Carrie, were you seeing a therapist and, and had you oh, been yeah. before? That's always been sort oh, yeah, of part yeah. of your thing. Oh yeah, I've been in therapy for years and years, and stacks of self-help books on my nightstand. So, I love it. Um, yeah, and then it just, that's just been a very important part of my life. I started in uh, in college seeing a, a therapist in New Orleans. That's and, beautiful. Uh, it always made me feel like I had a. Uh, I mean, 
I don't want to give the illusion that it's some magical cure for things, but I did feel like I had a parachute on. And when something sort of upset me or triggered me, I started a habit of like jotting it down to I'll talk to my therapist about yeah. this. And uh, so it did bring some, it did help me feel some relief. Yeah. It, I've gone, I've used uh, therapists during different times, but they always, when I did, they get you, they give you a perspective outside of yourself that I think is so helpful. Um, so I'm, I'm all about it. You do something really fun with Siri in the book. And aren't you glad you're the first to do that? Cause weren't you sort of <laughs> nervous? Like somebody else is going to do this and I'm, and I'm yes. going to be effed. <laughs> yes. But I think you I made really it, right? That. You pulled it off. I, I hope so. I, but, <laughs> How many days do we part? have till the book's out? Oh, Tuesday, I know. Oh, my God, I'm panicked. Yeah. There were a lot of little panics, though, because someone else has a book cover that's similar. Um, so I worried about that. Um, and then the Hey Siri thing, the other the other angle of that was um, a friend, point, friend pointed out some concern, like, well, what if Siri becomes obsolete? And then the book kind of doesn't make sense after a while, but we just took a risk and went for it and uh it's a it's a but, good device but it also gives it a time i remember when my novel misadventures in the 213 came out right before it came out they changed the hollywood area code to 323 so oh, no but you know what and everyone was like oh you must be so mad i guess it was like well maybe it's part of a time and mine really was timely in terms of the references so it sort mm. of sets it in a time but it is that thing that right before um it comes out and I also remember there was a paparazzi chase in my book and Princess Diana died after it was already locked and it was about to come out. But um, it was all right. We, it, 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 it was far enough away. Nobody cared. But it, it is that thing of like, because it takes a long time to go through the different stages of a book um, right. between finishing that first draft or whatever it is and getting it out in the world. And so you worry about all those things in your book. So congrats sure. for pulling it off. Um, Thanks. you, I've always wanted to go see the Northern Lights and oh, yep. in the book, your assistant character, Charlie and Kathy go see the Northern Lights. Is that based on true experiences? Yes. So that, that is inspired by actual, uh, experiences that were, that's one of my favorite experiences that I had with Carrie. She, um, she had wanted to see the Northern Lights for her whole life and she's traveled the world multiple times, but just it never happened. And so she had signed up for these weather alerts and she would get these weather alerts on her phone. And so, I don't know, it was like a random Tuesday or something. And she got this weather alert that conditions were great for a spectacular Northern Lights show. And so she sends me a text like, hey, let's go to Canada and see the Northern Lights tomorrow. Will you book flights and all that stuff? And so I did. And Within like we, 24 uh, hours notice. Oh yeah, it was, a, it was a quick turnaround. Yeah. So we, uh, we did and... Um, so we get on the flight, we land, it's freezing cold. I've never been in that kind of cold before. In fact, I'd never left the country until I started working for Carrie. And So you uh, had to get a passport a, and do all that stuff. I, yep, I had to get a passport. And uh, so I didn't have a proper winter coat. She bought me a proper winter coat and gloves and a hat and the whole thing. And uh, we went dog sledding to kill time during the day. And then that night we went to see the lights and it was uh, – it was – the most beautiful part, to be honest, was watching her reaction to it because she was just in awe. And, you know, I'm hyper aware that this is a woman who's seen it all. Right. And uh, it isn't it isn't every day that you get to see her truly um, uh, amazed by something. Yeah. And like so that, that was, childlike sense of wonder. Yeah. 
and that was really beautiful. Is it beautiful from your point of view? Is should I, do I need to do that? Go see the Northern Lights. Here's here's my little thing on the Northern Lights. Here's your Yelp review of the Northern Lights. Here's my Yelp. <laughs> yeah, um, I did not experience it like you see in photographs of it, right. where it's these sharp and crisp zigzags. Right, that's the way you uh, write about it. Yeah, it it my memory of it was it was more of a fog. But if you take a photo and the photo has a certain shutter speed, it captures that stuff. Yeah. So, um, so that's a fun learning experience. You know, I also lost some glasses on the frozen lake. I, I had a pair of glasses and it was so cold. And I was trying to stuff them in my coat pocket and I must have missed. And so I often think in, of, of my glasses, the bottom of some lake in Yellowknife that freezes over. Were they the prescription glasses? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe there's yeah. somebody up there that can now read because of- <laughs> Yes, I've done a good deed. They can read A Star is Bored by Byron Lane. <laughs> That's right. There's that's also right. an amazing set piece scene in Japan. A meal that, mm -hmm. that's in Japan. Was that inspired by a real story? Uh, yes, except only half the story. So um, Carrie had gone to a fancy dinner with a friend and she came back to the hotel with uh, her hotel room. We were sharing like this big villa and she had a purse full of sushi and she's truly such a generous, beautiful, sweet person. She didn't want to offend anyone um, by not eating the food. And she was doing Jenny Craig at the time. And so uh, she just ripped open a bag of the Jenny Craig, emptied the cereal in the purse, put the sushi in the Jenny Craig bag and uh, gave it to me to, to throw out the window. Right, because the dinner is depicted in the book and all of this exotic, expensive, the highest form of sushi in the world comes and she just keeps throwing it in her purse because she doesn't want to eat it. It's, it's like when I was thinking when this is a movie and it will be or a show, that scene is going to be amazing. So yeah, um, where was your favorite place you got to go with her? I think it was probably Japan because it was so um, it was so otherworldly and it was uh, it was it was more of a vacation than work. So like we also went to Australia, but that was heavy work stuff. Yeah, uh, we we went to England and that was a lot of work stuff. But uh, but Japan was a really a lot of sightseeing and um, and you know here I am just I'm just some guy from Louisiana, hadn't been out of the country before. And we're staying in like this hotel that used to be an emperor's palace and you can only get there by boat. And so I'm having all these wild experiences that um, truly were just once in a lifetime. So that was a really cool right. um, time. Right. Sometimes you look at it and you go, you know what? Rich people stuff is just better. Yeah, but then I've also glad. had this experience where rich people have to get the top of the line of the line of whatever and then when it breaks down, they can't get it fixed. Nothing's ever working. And you're like, just get a DVD player from Costco. Like, no, they have to have this whole thing. And it doesn't, and then the stuff doesn't work. I feel like that's a, that's a, uh, God's getting back at rich people for, <laughs> yeah. for, for their richness. I had a, a boss in the news business who told me that he, uh, he finally made news director and he was going to go buy himself a Porsche. That was his big, right. you know, and it was out here in LA and he, so he bought his Porsche and um, he's feeling good about himself finally. And he pulls up to a red light and he looks next to him and it's someone with the newer model that was already out. Yeah. And so already he's like obsolete. Before and, he even uh, got it home. 
Yes, yes. yes. So it, it's a little bit of a sweet revenge, huh? A little moment. Yeah, I'm taking this course on from Yale right now online. It's free. It's called The Science of Well-Being. And it's about oh. what makes people happy. I oh. am obsessed with it. But the, the we think that things are going to make us happy, but they don't. And because we're always comparing ourselves to reference points, meaning the guy with the nicer Porsche, you know, whatever. So all of that story that you told me about would be right at home in this course, which I highly recommend. It's free. You can take it at your leisure. Change my life. Anyway. I love that. I love that. It's really cool. I can send you some info about it. Um, I could listen to that all day, by the way. I love that stuff. If I were to just start over and pursue something else, it would be positive psychology. Um, it's, that field it, of what makes people the, happy. Yeah, the study of thinking, our thoughts, are that is the most important thing. That is where we live our lives in our mind. Yeah, and I just listened to this great TED Talk podcast by one of the people affiliated with this course or that they use as an as a example. And this idea that synthesized happiness... Things that we think, you know, our, our process of thinking about things is just as good as the kind we feel when we get what we want. There's not a difference in terms of like, yeah. oh, this is just cooked up rationalizations or whatever. Anyway, we can we can have another conversation about that. Um, I loved how the house is a character and I've been to that house. So as you were describing things, I was like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember that. Or, yeah, talk to me about the house, both in the book and also that you worked in every day. Because what I loved about it, it was it, it wasn't ostentatious. It was fun. Um, it wasn't like, oh, these people are so rich. It was quirky and cool. Yeah. So yeah, in the book, the house is uh, quirky and cool with a bunch of fireplaces and things like a giant disco ball in the living room and um, all that stuff. Uh, and in real life, Carrie was very proud of her house, and she she you can find photos of it. She loved. Uh, doing tours and there she she did interviews with magazines where they took pictures and uh, the HBO documentary features uh, many elements of her her home and property and it was very it was it was like an artist colony it was uh, colorful and beautiful and fun not a spot boring no corner without something dangling from the ceiling but it had a story too everything had a story it yeah. had a history um, and there was yeah. always a friend staying in the guest house or somebody, you know, mm -hmm. uh, home that ended up homeless somewhere and now they're there for a while or whatever it is. She was so generous. If if one of her friends needed something, that she she did what she could. So yeah. it was, yep, yep. Um, when I was in her orbit for a bit, how it worked is she was coming out with the book Delusions of Grandma this would have been 93. I had seen the publicity starting to come out. So I said to Detour Magazine, who I was writing for at the time, for free, by the way. Um, and I said, can we? Can I do Carrie Fisher? Can we do that? And they, they said yes. And so we set it up and it happened. And I went to her house. And already she was my dream interview because I just, like you probably, loved her voice, loved her mm -hmm. humor, her books, all of it the way she is on talk shows. I thought, I had this idea that we would like, she would like me. We would get along. Like the fantasy you have, right? Um, mm -hmm. We're going to be best friends. And I get there, uh, and you just, I, your character, when he goes to the house, I was like, I walked the sidewalk before. And um, I walk in, and I think somebody else answered the door. Maybe she did. But I said, where do you want to do the interview? And she goes, in bed. So we went and did it in her bed. And 
in the book, her bed is sort of where she kind of holds court or, or is that right? Cause that was my memory of that day. But, um, her bed was like headquarters. That's right. Home base. Yeah. She, she's been very open about that kind of thing too. And she's done many interviews that have been broadcast just where she's, uh, yeah, just hop in bed and let's chat. She was, she was fucking cool. Yeah. It was a slumber party that way. Um, yep. and I remember back in the day it was diet Cokes, but in your book, it's <laughs> Coke zeros. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you a question and you don't have to tell me what I want to hear. Okay. In the wake of our interview, we hung out a few other times over the next year or two, and I found some Return of the Jedi glasses at a thrift store that you would have gotten at Burger King with a Happy Meal, right? Mm -hmm. And I bought the full set of them and gave them to her. And I wonder if they lasted in that bar or if they... Yeah, do you, do you remember any Return of the Jedi glasses in her barred uh, Coke Zero Emporium, and you don't have to tell me what I want to hear. Oh, there would have I only have been four. Be... It wouldn't have been a bunch. <laughs> only four? Well, it was <laughs> right. the, the set, you know. Yeah. I, uh, I'll i just be honest that I, I don't remember seeing that. This interview is over. I... <laughs> no! Good luck with the book. No, okay. Yeah. Okay, that's fair enough. But... Uh... But I will say she, um, sometimes the things that she viewed as really precious went to like a deep storage that I wasn't involved with. Interesting. And, uh, and, but, and for the most part, she, um, you know, my job was to help organize her. And so I, there wasn't like, um, there wasn't like a spreadsheet where we could easily find things. That sure. was something I, yeah. No, that's so, okay. They weren't kicking around the bar. I thought they might have lived on in that bar. That's okay. Uh, I right. wish. I wish. I, but he's still, it's still a win because I it's found so them right. and I gave them to her. And now how cool is that? And it was so right in cool. that window before it became where, where you could find that shit at a thrift store. Before it was like, yeah. I, I should have bought every fucking glass they had from every <laughs> other thing. And then we wouldn't. Oh, listen. Yeah, We'd believe be me, I feel the same way about little Star Wars things yeah. that I have laying around. I should have, I should have brought all those things to her and had some of them signed and stuff. But what was a proud moment as an assistant where you like, I took this mess and I made it into this incredibly organized, visually pleasing, color coded masterpiece? What was your triumph? Oh, there. They're so boring. The things are so boring. Not to me. Not if uh, it involves office supplies. Oh, good. Okay. Well, some of them are. Um, some of them are hinted at in the book. Like I did have the doors taken off of her uh, uh, dresser in the dressing room because they were just uh, in the way when she was trying to get ready. So, like that's one thing that I did to, Very to try to streamline that. Very important. And then in other places, I would go through drawers and take photographs and. Uh, and organize them in plastic bins. Um, there was an empty file cabinet that I filled up with stuff. And at that point, we had manila folders, we had labels, and I tried to make it really, um, for me, idiot-proof. Idiot-proof for Idiot Byron, where I would, right. instead of, instead of uh, like those little tab things, I would take an actual manila folder, and I would cut like a half inch off the edge, then I would turn it sideways, and then I would write on it, headshots or you know that kind of, and then so it's easy to see um so little things like that i was always 
I was always like, oh, look at me. I'm really, I'm really making a difference. I love it. When you're going through stuff and organizing it, what's something you came across that took your breath away? Uh, I would find uh, pictures of like, uh, everyone talked about these legendary parties that, that Carrie used to have. She, she herself has talked about them yeah. and uh, told stories about them. But of course, like when I was there, uh, there were, there were, she wasn't in that mode. So there weren't a huge, bunch of huge parties. And so to find the pictures were, it was really kind of, um, it was really amazing. And to like see, you'd heard uh, about it, you'd heard um, about it. It couldn't have been that star studded. But look, have been here's that the proof. And then I would just find in a, at the bottom of a random drawer, uh, a snapshot of a celebrity sitting on her sofa in the living room where I was just working, you know? And yeah. It, so it's moments like that that are just like so surreal, but also so beautiful that that she she wasn't she wasn't so into it that she needed to have all that stuff framed. It was just uh, just stuck in the bottom of a drawer, you know? Yeah. Were you a fan of Star Wars growing up? I was, but I wasn't crazed. So right. I did have. Um, I did have uh, some of the characters. So like I had Luke Skywalker and Darth right. Vader and I had Ewoks Village. I had those yeah. action figures and I watched the movies and loved the movies, yeah. but I, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't crazy. Right. Um, which I think, which I think also helped. So of course. Um, yeah. Um, I got to go to one of those parties. I got to oh, go. Oh, tell me everything. Okay. Well, at the time I had been friendly with Margaret Cho. So uh, we were friendly. And so when I got the invitation, I invited Margaret. And when I picked her up, she was bringing another friend who was also a friend of mine. But already I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm breaking the rules. <laughs> and I can't tell celebrity A to leave this person. You know what I mean? But we were fine. Yeah. It was fine. But all night I just thought that's really bad form, you know. But I also didn't want to say you can't bring, you know, whatever. So it was fine. Um Every star in the world is there. And I remember hearing Albert Brooks say, and none of them are engaging me. You know what I mean? So it's more just fly on the wall, kind of walking around. I remember Albert Brooks saying that if a meteorite were to land on the house, Anson Williams would have a huge career. Because <laughs> he would be the only one left. And <laughs> um, Barbara Streisand, I think, was there. And I remember standing in line for food. And I think she had a chef named Gloria. Does that sound right? Uh-huh. Yep. And everyone loved Gloria's food. And I was in, in the line. And I was next to Angelica Houston. And I just tried to engage her about the food. Wow, this looks really delicious. Have you ever had anything like this before? And it was a total fail. Like, shut down. <laughs> no! I was just trying to be in the room with the person, you know. Of course. Yeah, yeah. And I will say it was fascinating to be there, but it wasn't that fun for me, mm. ultimately. I, right. Much more fun was the Easter egg hunt that she had. That was amazing. Um, and it, it was great to be there, of course. And I remember dropping Margaret and Scott off and then going back and, like, trying to you know, suck all the marrow out of that party. Um, but yeah, th there were so many famous people there. It was crazy. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah. And it was, it was, it made me feel cool that I got to go. Um, yeah. And I would, you know, well, you are then, cool. Huh? You, you are cool. You deserve to be there. I deserve to be there. You know, we, we, here's the other thing I noticed about her when in the times that I spent with her, 
Oh, here's another fun story. Yeah. I went over there, you know, once in a while I'd call her. She, she, I think she called me a handful of times and then come over or whatever. Um, one of the times was after Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman had been killed, but before OJ had been arrested, before the Bronco chase. So it was right in that window. She was obsessed with it. And she had another <laughs> neighbor who was obsessed, like an older man who was like getting all the latest news and like, so I remember there was a lot of intrigue around that, um, obsessed with and thinking he did it and all, all of that going on. I also would do this thing, and I don't know if you can relate to this dynamic because you were working there, but you know, if you're gonna go over, you always have to say, can I bring anything? In other words, you, the non-famous one, have to be of service to the famous one in a way that you wouldn't do it if it was just another friend. It was, you know, can I bring anything? And, and, and sometimes she would say, get something for Billy or whatever. Because um, her, her daughter at the time was, I mean, like two or three, like really young. And one time she asked me to pick up laxatives at the drugstore. <laughs> and I said, and I think I, I, I don't think this was before cell phones really were big. And I think I, I think I remember asking her, do you want one with a stool softener? She's like, no. But it seems like a laxative is a stool softener. Anyway, yeah. I got it. And then when you bring it, you're afraid to go, hey, that was eleven ninety nine. Like, you just eat it. Meanwhile, right. you're the poor struggling writer that wrote for free. Mm-hmm. But you can't ask the celebrity to pay you back for the laxatives. Right. Um, but it was an honor to do it, you know? Yeah. But the other thing I noticed about her, maybe you'll relate to this. In, the, in some of the times that we would hang out, there was a feeling that she was a little dazed or a little out of it or a little slow. Maybe it's some of her medication that she was taking for things. But she, but she would, things that you didn't think she heard or remembered, boom. Like she, or, or things that you think, oh, she's not really paying attention to, to me or what I'm saying right now. But she was, she was, and she could turn, she could recall it or bring it out or, Times when she didn't seem fully engaged, she actually was in a way. Does that yeah. relate? Do you relate to that? Does that make any sense? Oh yeah, she she was an absolute genius and uh, a student of the world and people. Uh, she could meet a person and right away get to the essence of them. And um, yeah, so she was her her senses were always uh, in tune. Yeah, uh, it was really remarkable. How did she feel about work when you were around her? Did she want did she want to or what was she working on at the time or what was going on? Was it when she was doing the one woman show? Yeah, she was wrapping up uh, wishful drinking right. and uh, and she loved doing that show. Yeah. 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 And um part of what I love is in the book the the character every day would be like, "Do you want to write today? Do you want to write today?" And I'm sure as a writer you relate to that sort of no, never. But I have to. But I, <laughs> right. you know, how did she yeah. inspire you as a writer in terms of like what it means to be a writer and the day to day of it? So she did work really hard um, uh, in terms of writing. So she, so in the book, the character is, does constantly ask that. But in real life, she was working, and um, she would handwrite everything, which, and then I would type it up. Uh, she has beautiful and just handwriting, handwriting, by the way. Oh, Beautiful handwriting. a thousand percent. Assigned, assigned yeah. Thing. yeah. Yeah. And 
so that's a, first of all a lesson in discipline and um, and whatnot to be able to to and patience to be thoughtful about your words. Um, like when I write, I'm typing, I'm vomiting it all out. But if you're she's handwriting, so she's measured. So right, the discipline I learned from her, and uh, another cool thing I learned from her was. Um, you know, some, I heard someone say recently, writing is like four hours of getting ready to write and then one hour of writing. Yeah. And one thing, yeah, one thing she would do is uh, grab a favorite book or something and she would read before she would write to kind of get herself the mindset, get it, get a kind of rhythm going for her, for her mind, for the words. That's really and then interesting. She would, yeah. And then she would write. And I, I try to do that too. It's really a, uh, that's just like a little thing I picked up. I think that's a great tip because it, it inspires you to think, oh, I can be part of this fraternity of people that are giving me this kind of pleasure. And, and you know, the, the distance between your idea and the finished thing is so arduous that sometimes it's nice to be reminded, oh, it can lead to something like this that's beautiful. Yeah, um, yeah. I've noticed in my own interactions with uh, people I've interviewed or friend, people I was friendly with that I was um, hanging out with a bit that were famous, you had to sort of be careful about how you talked about your own aspirations. Like if I'm interviewing somebody, I don't want to say I also have a screenplay in the trunk. You know what I mean? How were you able to talk to her about your dreams? Do you know what I'm saying? Um, or did you yeah, feel like I'm her assistant? She doesn't need to know that I want to write a play that will eventually go to the Edinburgh uh, festival, which we mm -hmm. want to get into. In, in other words, or was it like, did you try to stay in your assistant lane? He doesn't need to know yeah. about my I, yeah, acting. I tried to I tried to stay in my assistant lane in in almost everything. So um, I rarely talk to her about personal stuff and family or or dating, but sometimes. And uh, I tr I never posted photos of her uh, like when we were in Australia and we took pic in Bali and took pictures with like monkeys and uh um koala bears i would if i posted i would crop her out uh, so people didn't even know that i worked for her that was really important to me right um and uh and then she was supportive of things so so in 2009 i wrote and produced and starred in this movie uh, an indie movie called herpes boy and she watched it and and had great thoughts about it um she watched Last Will and Testicle and, and tweeted about it, which was very sweet. Um, so every now and then I would, but I really did try to um, go, I, I tried to be, I try to remember that I'm there to be of service. Right. You're not there and, to, so many people want something from them and you don't want to be that person. Right. I, and Downton Abbey, I, I, nowadays I look back and I'm like, uh, I really had the mindset like, you know, Byron, this is Downton Abbey and you're the downstairs, like, let's keep perspective. And who were you? Cool... Were you the Thomas? Were you Thomas the evil gay that fell Ooh, I loved it. I wish I was Thomas the evil gay. Yeah. I think I was more like the serious butler. I was right. very serious. Yeah, yes. I took the job very seriously. Wow, you were the... <laughs> I wish I could remember Mr. Schmidt or Mr... Uh... I know who you're talking about. Wow, you were the yeah. him. Very I was him with like the ruler and the like, where's the protocol here? Right. You know, so well, in that way, Carrie and I were really opposites, but I think it, I think it, I think it made for a good team. It's what she needed, you know, yeah. or what the, it's what the job is. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. Um, 
you talk about your dating life, uh, Charlie's dating life in this. Were you single and dating during this time? Oh, yeah. Or when did you? And, yeah, yeah. I know you're um, married now to Stephen Rowley. Um, well, we just got engaged. Engaged. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, we I, might as well oh, be married. Oh, my no, God. No, no, Because I want to ask about that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. So where were you in your dating world while you were doing this? And it's hard to date when you have a job where somebody can call and you have to drop everything. Yeah, yeah. So um, I was dating like a crazy person because I believed, which I still kind of think is true, that it's just a numbers game. So uh, Carrie and I would travel and sometimes it was like two weeks at a time here and there. So when we come back to L.A., I would line them up. And uh, so I would try to do like a couple dates every Saturday or something like that. Right. And so I was doing that and uh, and had a lot of funny experiences where like more than once I'd be sitting across from someone. And again, I was very private. And so my profile didn't say anything about her or whatever. And but I'd be sitting across from from some guy who was wearing like a Star Wars shirt. And I'd be like, oh, I work for her. Right. And um, of course, I felt very cool um, to be able to name drop like that. But uh, but that was really the only that was the only place where the that where the carry world mixed with uh, the dating. I really tried to keep it all separate. Yeah. And then finally, I I one one weekend when I met Steve, um, we were uh, we were in Carrie and I were in L.A. and it was a Saturday and I had the day off and I went to a Santa Monica to shop on Third Street or something and I had been on so many dates I was like I. I'm not even changing my clothes. I'm not taking a shower. I'm just going to meet this guy for coffee this afternoon. And of course it was Steve. There you go. And, uh, so it was a really weird, random kind of moment. And I feel like I was on that date because Steve and wrote about it a bit. Oh, right. in a fictionalized version in Lily and the Octopus. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I remember him talking about, you know, the way it was described. Um, and you proposed in a very unique way. Tell us about yes. it. Yes. So at the, uh, Steve and I had talked about getting married. So it was always, but very casually, it was always very like in the ether. And I wasn't sure if he was going to propose or should I propose? You know, like we hadn't talked about that, but I thought there aren't many opportunities where you have a first book. And uh, so I decided at the last minute to um, propose in the book if I could. So I, I called my editor and I was like, is it too late to add a few words to the acknowledgments? And he was like, oh, well, what are the words? And I was like, oh, well, can we put, will you marry me? And he was so excited and so happy for me. And it all worked out. And because the advanced reader copies had already been printed. So this was yeah, just Yeah, I did be not get a proposal the, in my... Um, I know, I know. It's just, in the, <laughs> it's just in the hardcover. So everything was, uh, all the wheels were in motion. And I, I asked just at the right time. And so they included it. And then when they got printed... My editor, James Malia, who's so awesome, uh, he rushed a copy to me. And so I, I got it and I called Steve over and I was like, Steve, I kind of made a change to the to the ending here in the acknowledgement section about you. What, what, is this weird? And so then you, he read you it. You brought and, it up to him. You, you, I brought it yeah, up to him, yeah. You weren't waiting for him to sort of happen upon it because he'd already read uh, it after. He had already read it. I had been waiting a long time, I fear. So you were like, yeah. hey, will you take a look at this? You're trying to act cool? I was trying to be so cool. <laughs> I was trying to be so cool, but I was so nervous too because there's always a chance, you know. I guess that he could have said no, and then then it's then it's in print. It's in the Library of Congress. It's right. in the Kindle and the audiobook, yeah. you know. So, um, but he he gasped and then was like, "Yes!" And then I had gotten these rings, and um, then it, then it was just all cute giddiness. And I said, "Should I 
put this ring on you? And he's like, I'll do it myself. And he just took it and stuck it on. And it were, was a were you very in your house sweet moment. Rings? Yep, we were here. Yep. I love that. It's so good. It's such a good story. Um, I feel for you because I know how exciting it is to have a book come out, but to be doing it now must be very strange. And also you've just been been through some treatment. So talk about this crazy, exciting, scary time. Surreal. It's right? so weird. Yeah, it did it did it's hard to get a book published, first of all. It's hard to write a book. And then so I jumped a bunch of those hurdles and uh and suddenly we have this release date coming up and then I find out that my, my testicular cancer that I had five years ago uh, appeared back in some lymph nodes during a routine scan. And so then the first time that I had testicular cancer, they removed the testicle and then all my tumor markers went back to normal. So they were like, you probably don't need chemo. Let's see if it comes back. So I was getting tested every few months. And right before the five-year mark, which is when you're usually out of the woods. Here, yeah. yeah. Uh, a scan showed that it came back. So then I had to do chemo. So, uh, so then I'm writing my agent and my editor, and I'm like, guys, I'm sorry, I got his chemo, but I'll be done in July, right before the release, in time to do whatever I need to do. So chemo was a real drag, and my hair fell out. So it's like uh, I'm talking to people, and I'm not looking like I, you know, used to look. And 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 every now and then I'll feel a little residual leftover sickness from the whole thing, but nothing too bad. Testicular cancer is very treatable, and the worst part of the treatment is really just nausea. And once you stop, that goes away. And so the cancer thing was crazy, but it was it did bring me some comfort to know that once the chemo treatments were done, I had this book thing to look forward right. to. Yeah, I get to go and and tour and do yep. readings and all of the stuff. But then the pandemic. Um, so there's no touring. Um, there's there's no fantasy of walking through the airport or something and seeing the book on the shelf or going to the bookstore and seeing people pick it up. I was once um, on tour and I was in a, in the lounge waiting to board the flight and I saw this guy reading it. And the, oh, the thrill of that, it's not that great, really. It's not that great. You get over it. It's too late now. Now, <laughs> I, now I know what I'm missing. I get it. But with a um, paperback, you can rock the shit out of the paperback. Yeah, let's hope and, let's hope and see. But I'll, I'll tell you, I actually... There's a little part of me that's like the pressure's off. So yeah. if uh, I hope people love the book and um, it's a labor of love and and I hope it it soars. But if it doesn't, there's a part of me that's like, oh well, we're in a pandemic. Well, I loved it and I think it's going to bring joy to people at a time when they need it. Um, oh, thanks, Dennis. I I like that you. I feel are very honest about the characters' addiction issues. In a way, I was a little surprised. Like, oh, okay, we're, we're dealing with this. But it's ultimately hopeful and poignant and and uh, leaves you feeling good. Um, how important was it to you to, to, to give people a feeling of uplift? Was that always, you know what I mean? Like, or was it just yeah. true to your story? Is that the way your journey was? It's a little of both. I mean, I am generally optimistic and hopeful after all this therapy and self-help book stuff. Right. And uh, so I did want that to be a part of it. But I was also during that during that time working for her, hopeful and optimistic. I mean, she did energize me 
she did save me in so many ways. And, and just the simple act of uh, being around her and being seen by her, the shine that we talked about, the change in gravity when you're around a person like that, really did make me feel seen in life again and made me feel worthy of having a life and all that stuff. So it really was a time of optimism. And all the stuff about um, like the characters uh, in the book, their addictions and their depressions and stuff. Um, I really view all that stuff as just human experiences. I, I don't, I don't view it as like uh, terrible, you know, things that drag you down. Oh, it's all this person that... really fucked up there. You know what I mean? Or like, yeah, it's part of life. And yeah, and... it's just, it's humanity. And can we look at all that with uh, yeah. with honesty and uh, and maybe a little humor and maybe a little hope yeah. and is that helpful in some way? Um, I hope so. Yeah, um, you may hear my dog heavy breathing and licking his nether regions. Um, that's and that's it's for important. the that's for the listeners as well. He's getting groomed today, <laughs> Enzo. Do you want to see Enzo? Uh -huh. um, yes. Anyway, because you're like wondering what is happening. Oh, oh actually, I can see Enzo in the mirror. Hi, oh, friend. Hey, you were seeing him in the mirror. Yeah, so you don't need this. Yeah, seeing him in the mirror is so cute. The character Kathy has a dog in the book, and mm -hmm. Carrie uh, had had a dog that I remember her doing a lot of press stuff with. Talk to me about yeah. the dog. Um, well, the dog uh, in the book is named Roy. And he's inspired uh, by Gary, Carrie's dog in real life. Yes. And uh, like I was saying, I was very serious at the time. So when there was conversation about Carrie getting a dog, I was not in favor. You're seeing yourself uh, cleaning up the crap and all the rest of it. That's right. And um, but once she... That's a whole new Bible think, you'd have to create. And yeah, it's, uh, a, it's a lot. It's, it felt like it would be a lot. But uh, true to form, Carrie followed her heart and she lived the life on her own terms and she got this dog and it was love at first sight. He was um, so fun and so lovely. And it was, I mean, look, it, there were crazy moments. She would, uh, he traveled with us. So there was like, I always had to navigate uh, wee wee pads, make sure that, so I would ship wee wee pads to the hotel in advance of our arrival since so I could fit other things in the suitcases. Um, so it was a constant like managing of that kind of thing. But um, but it really Gary really did enhance uh, both of our lives. I love that. I'm glad to hear that. But I was reading it going, can they take a dog? Like on some of the trips, they had the dog, and I was thinking mm -hmm. about you know visas and how that how does it work? Because I know some places you can't take the uh, dog. Oh, Dennis, it was a real nightmare. It was in the early stages of uh, it was before the real animal lockdowns and seriousness started um but uh but she had gone through the process of of having gary registered in in ways for um travel and so that was all important and the only the only mistake there were a couple of times where i made mistakes and uh one of them was in um germany we were going from germany to the uk and they had different standards for how to how to travel with a dog and uh I didn't realize that you had to see a vet 24 hours before your flight or something. So we're in Germany. Uh, I panicked. I needed to get Gary some kind of vet approval. And uh, so I'm calling every vet because I needed to see him that day. And so we rushed. And also, like, I don't speak German. And some of the 
people working at the German vets didn't speak English. So there was all just all that drama. And then finally I had to take a taxi to some random veterinarian's office, which I think was like, in my memory was like in someone's home or it was like a converted home. And uh, so the doctor examined Gary and then they put a stamp on, on the dog passport. Cause in the European union, they have like doggy passports and uh, the stamp had a time, but the time was an hour after our flight. So at the time might've been 3 PM, but our flight was the next day at 2 PM. So I needed the time to be, so I, will you change the time to 2 PM? They refused. So then I just had to move the flight so that it was exactly 24 hours. So it was just a lot of that. It was a lot of that. So that was a, a lot of that. Yeah. And I also know from when I used to interview celebrities, celebrities get away with murder with their pets. Like an actress could, they, an actress could walk in with a little dog somewhere where they never allowed dogs. Oh, but it's Paris Hilton and her little dog. Like, I feel like people probably let Carrie and Gary get away with things that normally would never be able to get away with, pet-wise. Uh, maybe. But I'll tell you, he was really lovable. So, yeah, he was uh, so fun. Yeah, he was fun yeah, to be yeah, around. Yeah. 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 I love it. Did Gary live, or how? what's going on with Gary? Has he passed? Um, Gary is uh, is with, I think, some family friends and stuff. But, but uh, he's still there's with a, us. There's... He still walks yeah, yeah, he has his own. Uh, he has his own Instagram, um, Gary, uh, Gary the dog, or something like that. He has. I know he has more followers than Gary me. I'm Fisher. not going to ask. So I know yeah. it's very depressing. Same. Another part of the book that I really related to is the family stuff, particularly the father stuff. Um, yeah. Talk to me about writing that part and why it was important to you, and how you feel like it it flowed with the whole thing. Well, I wanted the Charlie character to, um, it's hard to say Carrie was a mother figure to me because sometimes I felt like maybe I was the parent. Um, but she was like a, she was like a guardian. Um, she was a friend and a mentor, but in the book I wanted Kathy and Charlie, I wanted Kathy to be a, a look like a mother figure to Charlie. So for that, I wanted Charlie to need family. And so in the book, Charlie's uh, mother has passed away and he's got a father who is uh, not accepting and is in many ways the opposite of Kathy. Um, so that's really where the father was born. And I'm from Louisiana, I'm from a conservative family. Uh, so some of that... Um, the spirit of some of the dad's strictness and all that was a part of my life, but my father in real life is not the guy in the book. Um, my dad in real life is a is a good man who um, really did his best, and and I never felt like I was abused or anything like that. And uh, in the book, it, it, the dad character is much more hard. Hard, interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Is your mother alive in real life, or has she passed away? Yeah, she's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's alive. Yeah. yeah. So that was another element that was a little bit like. Uh, uh, a mix of like, so, so, but my mom did have kidney cancer and there's a kidney cancer situation with the dad in the book. So I tried to merge, it was a real mix of like experience and imagination, you know? Yeah. Are there moments in your life where you think, what would Carrie do? When you're in a situation? Oh, yeah. And like, how, oh, yeah. and how has I... she empowered you in that way, I guess? What, what are those situations like? Um, gosh, I wish I could think of an example off the top of my head, but I just remember 
even in real in real life, um, she she came from a place where she believed the universe was friendly. So if she wanted something, she would ask. And if people said no, then it was okay. And if they said yes, great. And that was really foreign to me uh, of living a life of fear. Uh, Scarcity. Say no. There's not enough. Yes. There's not a There's place not for enough. me. If they have a place, then I don't have a place. That's right. Uh, very common. And um, so, in that way, I learned from her that I don't have to be. I don't have to be so serious. I don't have to be so negative. Um, that I can stress myself out and I can have catastrophic thoughts and think that things are going to go sour. But the truth is usually things work out. Yeah. So I can kind of skip the catastrophic part and just go to the, oh, it'll probably work out part. And life is a lot happier that. One of the things I learned in this happiness course is that human beings have a very strong ability to just adapt. So the things we think are going to be horrible, even if they happen, are not as horrible as we think they're going to be. Yes, Um, Yes. it's all about the thinking. This one self-help lady I love, her name is Byron Katie, same first name as me. I know it's weird. Um, And she always says, reality is always kinder than your thoughts about it. And I keep finding that to be true over and over again, that I, I, in my head, oh my gosh, this is going to be a disaster, or this this won't show up, or this won't work out. And then reality is kinder. It either is works out better or not like I think. And so... um, Anyway, that's that's my uh, that's that's what I relate to. Tell me a time about laughing your head off when you were working for Carrie. So one of my favorite memories with Carrie was um, a, a, a rich and famous friend of hers heard from like a housekeeper that Ross Dress for Less was this oasis of um, affordable, fashionable, and so Carrie wasn't into that kind of stuff, but she was like let's go see. Um, so we get in her car. She's holding Gary. We're almost there. And this is the Ross Dress for Less at Sunset and La Brea. Yeah. Chaos. So it's already, the street is crazy, you know, as I'm trying to turn in. And just as I'm almost turning in the parking lot, Gary starts peeing on Carrie. And uh, so she's like, pull over, pull over. But it's like three lanes of traffic. I'm like, I can't, I can't. So I put the blinker on and I finally get over and she hops out and runs in the store. And then I go park. And by the time I get in the store, I see her uh, in a, a new blouse that she she just went in, grabbed something dry off the rack, went to the dressing room, put it on, and a flock of security guards think she, I don't know what they think, that you, you can't wear the clothes until you pay for them or whatever. So she's carrying Gary, a new blouse, walking out, and uh, is just yelling to me to pay for it. And um, it was just that sort of like, Meantime, her, her friend is in there, like, shopping for belts and has, like, two handfuls of belts and waving them around like they're snakes. So I see Carrie running out uh, with the new blouse on, carrying Gary. And the security guards are behind her. The friend wants to check out with all these belts that she thinks she's getting for such a good deal. This is the and famous friend. Famous friend. Okay. So just all that kind of... And we left. Like, Carrie did not do any more shopping. She saw what she needed to see. Yeah. Um, less dress for less. But that, it was those kind of moments that just made me feel like I'm living in a sitcom. What a beautiful, what a beautiful world we're in. Yeah. I will think about that every time I drive by that Ross, dress for less. Was there a moment on the job where you were really proud that you were there or stepped up or where you felt, where you felt like good that you were able to be there in a way? 
Because you write about in the book, a lot of it is about being there. Yeah. Um, I, I think maybe that's generally how I've felt. Um, I can't think of a specific example, but I, I, it's so weird to say, but, um, I did try to be there for her. And in a lot of ways, just her being my boss and me getting to spend time with her felt like her being there for me. And, uh, like I said, she was always very kind and very generous. And, um, so just the experience in itself changed my life. So I, I, and I, I did, and I do love her. So it really was, um, I really was glad to be of service, you know? Yeah. When did you know it was time to move on? That's part of what Charlie deals with in the book. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish I could say that there was a moment, um, where I just decided this in real life that it was time to go. But the truth is it just, uh, it was just time. I had been there for three years, just about three years. And, uh, it really was, you know, you really are living someone else's life in a job like that. Yeah. And, uh, if I didn't have other ambitions of my own, if I didn't want to do my own writing and do my own film projects and, and, uh, I was in a writer's group and I was missing meetings and, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to, uh, move in with Steve and start a life with him. I wanted to get a dog, you know, and, and, uh, if it wasn't so hard to, to do both, I would have just stayed because it was the perfect, it was so fun. Right. Um, but, but it's but a thing it really of like, was, am I going to live my own life or am I going to live to help somebody else with theirs? Yeah. And, and, and so that it just, story comes up. it just, yeah. And so I just, uh, I just decided I, I had to go. Um, your title, A Star is Bored. There's a moment in the book where the word bored is said. And to me, it landed like a bomb. It felt like when somebody's got the shine, the last word they're ever going to hear from anybody is that. Right. And when you say it, it lands like a bomb. Um, any thoughts about that? I just wanted to tell you I had that experience with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, in, in real life, our experience together was really, uh, smooth and, and joyful and, uh, you know, it is fiction. So there is manufactured moments, uh, to, uh, address plot and stuff like that. So, uh, but in real life, there were no, there were no big moments and my gosh, I, I can't say I was ever really bored. Right. The way it works in the book is so effective, especially in, in lieu of the title. It, as, yeah. a, as you're, I think what you were going for, I found very, very effective. Oh, thanks, Dennis. Can you talk to me a little bit about what it was like when she passed? It must um, have just been devastating. Yeah, it was really... You might have been afraid you were going to get at some point. Yeah, I think, I think anyone who's been with anyone... Uh, with uh, issues of addiction and stuff, always there's a little part of you that's worried. Um, but uh, yeah, it was really devastating. I had just seen her at her birthday party and um, it was just really, it was really heartbreaking, you know, and I know I share that grief with the whole world and everyone who had, who knew her and who, or who just knew her from the movies and stuff. So um it was really terrible. I, I, and she's the first person who was close to me, who ever died, you know, like my parents are still alive. My sister's still alive. My grandparents died when I was young. 
Um, and Carrie is the first person who, who, uh, died when I was an adult and I, that I was able to kind of feel those emotions. So, uh, I think you do feel a little changed after that. Yeah. And, um, there's a character in the book, Miss Gracie, who is Kathy's mother. So I'm sure you spent time with Debbie Reynolds as well. I mm. was so blessed when I did my interview that Debbie breezed in at the end. Oh, you are so lucky. And did they did the Debbie and Carrie show and I have it on tape. I actually, after they passed, I dug up the tape and, play, and put it on my mm -hmm. podcast. Um, it was so entertaining. Oh, yeah. They were great together. Just uh, there's that HBO documentary where they interact so much and it was just like that. They, they yeah. loved each other. Yeah. Um, on a side note, you wrote a really funny play called Tilda Swinton Answers an Add-on Craigslist. You yeah. play uh, a guy in it and Tilda Swinton, played by our friend Tom Lank, moves in with you. And yeah. you had quite an odyssey with it. It ran in LA for a long time and you went to Edinburgh once yep. or twice twice what's edinburgh like i think i always wanted to go there even just as a a um i've been to the city but as a during the festival to just see shit and but is it like summer camp for theater dorks like what's it like yes it is so fun it is so heavenly it's this really old city so it's uh you feel that spirit of of all the artists who've gone before you and and whatnot and, uh, you know, we, we all, so the cast, it was, it's me, Tom Lank, Mark Dude Sullivan, Jane Whistle, and our director, Tom Detrinas. The five of us, we all traveled together, uh, both years. We all went, we rented a five bedroom apartment, stayed, lived together. And then we would walk, uh, the half hour walk through this park and golf course. It was like a public golf course to get to the theater and uh, we still, like right now, there's a text chain where we're kind of pretending like we're there because no one's, they, they got canceled this year. So right. we're talking about like, hey, will you get me something at the, uh, at the mac and cheese stand? Or hey, where, will, you, will you bring me an order of dumplings? Or uh, Tom Lank, you left all the cabinets in the kitchen open again. And right. so it really was. So living there, experiencing that for 30 days, having great reaction from the crowds and the first year we were there, we performed in uh, like a, a circus tent um, that was like an igloo for like, it seated 120 people. And the second year, it was just a little bit larger tent, about 200 people. And uh, everyone's there to make art and to have a good time. And uh, it was so fun. You must go. I'm so, so jealous. Fun. It sounds amazing. Who would it's come so see your show? Would they love it? Would they get it? I'm sure British people and... Yeah, we would change a few jokes that were maybe too American right. into more British jokes. But for the most part, we stuck to the script and uh, and it was a wide mix of people and including like like Graham Norton came to see the show. We didn't know he was coming. Oh, uh, thrilling. Yeah, he left and someone was like, I think Graham Norton was here. And we were like, what? And then he tweeted about it, which was so cool. Oh, that's what and, it's uh, all about. Yes. Oh, getting a fucking celebrity to tweet. Uh, they, do they even do that anymore? Exactly. We're so grateful. And it feels like the ultimate ask. It feels like you're asking for a limb for them yes. to type up 14 fucking characters or whatever it is. A thousand percent. Yeah. Well, he was very kind and generous. And he, so he tweeted, so it's people from like Grand Norton to like families. Like uh, this one family, uh, they came twice. So they came both years. And sometimes people would come multiple times. It was just a really supportive fascinating, uh, interesting experience. And we had great word of mouth. So 
some people would would come again and again just to bring their friends because it was sort of a um I, I don't want to sound braggy, but you know, people could be like, Oh, this is a sure thing. Right. I know yeah, you'll yeah, have yeah. a good time. No, I get know. it. Yeah. Uh, so it was just, it, yeah, it was a, it was a wild, it was a wild. And then once Tom is uh so, so you sort of have to hustle a little bit to get people there. Yeah. It's kind um, of like P town where you're giving out flyers and shit. Okay. That's right. So Tom Link was handing out some flyers and uh, he was like, Tilda Swinton play, Tilda Swinton play. And, and this uh, young woman grabbed one of the players and was like, Tilda Swinton, does she know about this? I'm her niece. Um, and she was like Anna Swinton or something like that. And Amazing. And Are you shitting your got, pants a little bit? Uh, well, Tom comes back to us and he's like, oh, Tilda's relative might come tonight and da-da-da. And anyway, she did come, the, the relative, and loved it and and uh, was texting, said she would text Tilda and showed us pictures of them together. And it was so lovely. And it's moments like that that you're just sort of like, Edinburgh is Edinburgh is magical. It was really it was really a great experience. I love that you got to have that. I would love to check it out sometime. Um, how can people buy your book? It's going to be everywhere. Like, tell people how they can buy it. So wherever you want to buy your books. So um, yeah, I know indie bookstores right now could really use the help. So you can go to indiebound.org and it'll tell you the nearest uh, indie bookstore that you can order from, or you can order from them directly. Amazon has it. Uh, wherever wherever books are sold, they'll they'll have a stars board, and uh, um, and then you can find me on Instagram or Twitter and all that stuff. So um, my heart all... breaks a little bit that you're not going to get to sign a bunch of books right away. I mean, maybe you are in your own way. Maybe there's contingencies, but the thrill of signing people lined up at a table signing books. Yeah, I don't have it. Oh. Not doing you will. It. You will. You will. Yeah. For sure. The book is I so don't, good. I don't, have, I don't have any weird feelings about that. Like okay, I really good. do feel kind of like uh, I'm trying to. I'm trying to do our self help thing, Dennis. I'm trying to live in the moment. Live in the moment. What is? I'm accepting all this. You know. I will tell you. There's a downside to that, which is um, I will occasionally need a copy of my older books to give to people for something or whatever. So I'll order them on Amazon used and they will come back to me and I will have signed them (laughs) to somebody like say Neil Patrick Harris and David Burka, for example, just throwing names out. Uh I will buy back a used book that was given away by another person. Although when I first did that, uh, somebody wrote me and they knew it was me and they're like, I really love this book, but I broke. So I had to sell it. It was like, it's so interesting. So um, at least you won't have to see your signature staring back at you at a used book that you buy in 10 years. Um, right, right. But you know what the thing I did do was I had book plates that I would do for people that wanted to sign copy, but that weren't, prox- you know, that weren't with me. So they would email me and I would sign a little um, label and send it to them and they would put it in their book. So that's nice. You know, That's office nice. supply, full circle office supply moment. I am open to any of it. Yeah. Whatever people want. I'm I'm just grateful for the support. Well, it's such a gift for people during this time. It feels light and life affirming and engaging as hell and funny and moving. Um, your fiance is also a novelist, yep. Stephen. How are your habits different in terms of writing and discipline and process? Are you in different parts of the house pulling out your hair? Or- yes. Yeah. So he's in an, he stays in another room. And uh, he's much more disciplined than me. He he can close the door and stay and write yeah. and write for hours and hours. And 
I take more breaks. And, you take more uh, breaks. Breaks. Interesting. I like to walk and think and all that stuff. Right. Um, but, and I also bother him a lot more than he bothers me. So I'm always like, let me throw this idea out at you. Or I'll ask, is this standard or like a lot of like legal stuff with contracts or whatever. Right. And, yeah. and he's, he's got a, a book coming out uh, next year called the Gunkel, which is so good. It's my favorite of his three books. And the editor just came out in paperback and, and the back of the editor is a sample chapter from the Gunkel, which is. Oh, just, that's awesome. Yeah. I yeah, can't yeah. wait. I, I, it, you guys are quite the literary power couple. It's, so, God, it's good. so weird. It's um, so weird. Final question. Your book is now out in the world. Where do you like to fantasize that somebody is reading it? Because I used to think, oh, my book is going to all these places that I'm not going. But it feels mm -hmm. like I am a little bit. Yeah. Or somebody would take a picture on a beach and send it to me. And it's just like, I, I don't know. I love it. It's it's really simple that uh, I do I do wish to just see someone reading it just like I've thought about just I'm, I'm in Palm Springs now just someone sitting at a cafe reading it like I have had that thought like it'd be nice to see that but uh, but if nothing grandiose like I'm not imagining people in Scotland you know cracking yeah. it open I just it was a very it's a very simple like oh it'd be nice to just kind of see that. Somebody at um, Ross Dress for Less fucking reading it. Please, I'm begging the people of Ross. Somebody that works there during their break. Yes. Um, God, that, that that anecdote about Ross Dress for Less is going to tickle me so much. Stars are just like us, man. They're just like us. They love a bargain. You know? They love a deal. I love a deal. All right, Byron, I'm so proud of the book for you because oh, I think it's so good. You. And um, I loved reading it. It brought up so much stuff for me, obviously. And um, what I, I think Carrie would love it. You think about that? I, I think she'd be proud of me. Yeah, that's fantastic. Awesome. Well, um, enjoy everything that comes with it, and I hope that uh, that that people pick it up because it's thanks, Dennis. Delightful. I love you. I'm so grateful for this. Thanks for chatting with me. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks to Byron Lang. Check out his book, A Star Is Bored. Um, after I did the interview, there was something I wanted to mention that Carrie said, or she wrote in her book, The Best Awful. That's one of the things that I often think about. Um, and I wanted to bring it up to Byron and it just slipped my mind. Um, she was writing about her struggles with bipolar disorder. And I think at one point she ended up hospitalized or, you know, it, there was a period where things got pretty dark and she lost her sense of humor and then she got it back. And uh, one of the lines from her book that she wrote is um, if it about how she's able to find humor in her life. And she said, if it wasn't funny, it would just be true. And that is unacceptable. And so I try to find humor in things like the world we're living in. Because if it's not funny, it's just true. <laughs> and, and that's unacceptable uh, sometimes. So um, thanks for Byron for uh, writing that cool book, and we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone.